This episode was made possible by our top-tier patrons, Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. Stay tuned for an episode bringing updates about what the Patreon's going to do, what's going to happen with the bonus episodes and all that jazz. But generally, thanks for sticking around. Listeners make the show what it is. And now, back to the regularly scheduled programming. The 13th of February, 2021. Former President Donald Trump underwent his second impeachment. This gave him a plurality of impeachments across US presidential history. But despite an overwhelming preponderance of evidence, as admitted by Republican senators like Mitch McConnell, the former president was acquitted on charges of attempting to ferment an insurrection to overturn the results of the presidential election that he lost. The incident in question was the Capitol riot, the event that we began our analysis of cults with. The charismatic leader persuaded a mob of angry followers hell-bent on carrying out his will, refusing to admit that he had failed in his divinely anointed task to attempt to enforce his wishes through overt violence bit of an on-the-nose place to start, you might say, with the final episode. We're not talking about that impeachment tonight. We're looking at a different impeachment that actually got a sitting president removed. And it's all to do with the cult. October of 2016. South Korea. An investigation begins into the president of South Korea at the time, Park Geun-hye. The president has, you see, a special advisor. That's not so strange. Lots of political leaders have informal advisors. In the UK, we have our own Dominic Cummings no more. Donald Trump had Jared Kushner. The so-called grey eminences of politics will always be there to a certain extent. But this advisor was a little different. Choi Sun-sil's father had been a cult leader. To understand their relationship, we need to go back a little ways. 1974. A young Park Geun-hye is reeling in the wake of her mother's death. Her father is the president of Korea, but Korea at this time is under the thumb of a military dictatorship. Tensions with the North are never low, and in 1961 there had been a coup d'etat that landed Park Chung-hee, Gun Hye's father, in the hot seat. But this had meant that people would try to disrupt that power, and a botched attempt on her father's life had taken the life of her mother. An assassin had tried to shoot him during a speech on Independence Day, but the gun went off early and the bullets went wide. Several casualties were inflicted, and one was Yup Young soo the First Lady of South Korea. Gun Hye was rushed back to Korea from France, where she'd been attending university. Barely has she time to mourn her mother when she has to take up the mantle of the First Lady, as her father had but the one spouse, as you might expect. Enter Choi Tae-min. One of several names he's had over the years, he started life as a Buddhist monk before becoming a Presbyterian minister, and after that he flitted from faith to faith before founding his own sect, the Church of Eternal Life. Our first source for their first meeting comes from a report declassified in 2007 that dates back to the 70s. Tae-min had approached Gyun-hye in the wake of her mother's death, claiming that she had appeared to him in a dream, and he had been told by her dead mother to advise her. Perhaps it was the grief, or some other spiritual motivation, but this approach seemed warmly received. Choi Tae-min then became the confidant of the Park family, including her father, until his own assassination in 1979. After that, things start to get strange. When Park Chung-hee was assassinated in 1979, his assassin, the military general Kim Jae-gyu, told his judge and jury that one of the reasons for the assassination of the President Park was to curb the growing influence of Choi Tae-min. Of concern was the tendency of Choi Tae-min to acquire bribes and undue influence in the Korean government for members of his family. Another point of concern was the undue influence he was having over Park Geun-hye, who was 40 years his junior. In 1979, she was 27, he was 67. When they'd met, she'd been 22 or 23. To call the relationship predatory would be something of an understatement, we'll get into specifics later, but the accusations of Tae Min being the Korean Rasputin seemed well-founded, in the sense that a mystic who claimed special powers had appeared to a ruling family to offer guidance at a time when they were very vulnerable. We'll get back to Troy Tae Min in the Church of Eternal Life in a bit. For now, we're jumping forward to 2016. Things ain't going so good for President Park. Her political party, Sonyeri, lost the seats in the primary election that led to their government now forming effectively a minority. Korea has a parliament and a president, and her involvement in the campaign was widely criticised and blamed for that failure. After a decent showing of 54% the previous year, her approval ratings have dropped to 30%. Things aren't looking good for the president. Her economic reform plans are now in jeopardy. This would be a really bad time for a massive political scandal to break. And it does! In the latter half of the year, reports start surfacing about the relationship between Choi Soon-sil, the daughter and successor of Choi Tae-min, who by this point was dead, and President Park. Accusations start arising that her control over the president was a little more than just a special advisor. Then, a masterstroke by JTBC, a major Korean news broadcaster. 
Following up a lead that led them to Germany of all places, they found a tablet that had once belonged to Choi, with the login information still valid. Popping it open, they found unfinished drafts of speeches, including one which had been directly edited by Choi that Park had delivered two years earlier in Germany. The trap was set. The newsroom first reported that there were rumours that Park's speeches had been edited by an unsanctioned individual. The president denied the rumours, of course, only to be sandbagged by the reveal of the tablet. Not only was Choi Sun Sil acting as the president's informal advisor and actively influencing government policy, but the president had lied about it on national television. By October, as the scandal broke, the extent of the corruption was revealed. The ratings dropped to a paltry 5% approval. Richard freaking Nixon only ever got as low as 24%. The arrest started coming in, and what was revealed wasn't so much the insidious influence of a cult, but far more the human side of things. Bribes. Offices given without due experience, people getting into university with notes slipped under doors. Classic cronyism. And it brought down the Park administration a political dynasty forged in a military dictatorship lasting decades when, in March of 2017, President Park was removed from office via impeachment. End of the story of the cults in Korea, right? Wrong. In 2020, we've been living through the coronavirus pandemic, the worst global pandemic since the Spanish flu, which will come as a surprise to exactly nobody listening right now. But what you might not remember was a story that was big at the start of the virus. The Shincheonji Church of Jesus, a group that has been described as a cult, actively dodged the COVID track-and-trace scheme in Korea. Their belief was that illness was indicative of sin and that suffering through it is what brings a form of salvation, and thus their members knowingly allowed infected other members to participate in group worships, creating super-spreader events. Sources of Shincheonji are mixed. The Wikipedia page seems like it was written by a member of the group, just from a passing of the syntax, and articles online have accused the Korean government of scapegoating them for their poor handling of the virus but other sources give testimonies from former members who talk of deceptive proselytizing, attempts to convert people by not disclosing their affiliation and denying all membership until they're certain that the person is hooked. Members, when tested for coronavirus, ran off when told they would need to quarantine. They ignored the rules on lockdowns, and in one instance, a member of the church who was coordinating the response in the city of Daegu concealed his attendance of ceremonies until after he had tested positive for COVID, despite knowing them to have been a source of infections and all of this against a backdrop of protests by conservatives against the lockdown in Korea, led principally by those who had supported President Park Geun-hee during her impeachment proceedings. Curious, no? The story isn't quite as nuts as the past few, but it is important for several reasons. The impact that a cult can have behind the scenes and the way they can manipulate the emotionally vulnerable, and the fact that the vast majority of the worst things that groups like this do aren't the lurid stories of murders and sacrifices, although that does happen, it's the basic crimes that don't make the papers. Embezzlement, fraud, corruption. It's a tale of one country's strange journey to being in the position of this. What happened in the Korean peninsula that allowed this situation to become what it was? Today on Demystified's final episode of Season 3, we look into the fact of the fiction behind the Korean cult scandals. Once again, for the final time this season, to tell this story proper, we're going to need to go way back, as we always do, but perhaps further here. We're not looking to begin with the cult founder Choi Tae-min, we'll look at him later, rest assured, because this episode doesn't really begin with him. Now, to tell this story properly, we need to look at religions in Asia, which we touched on last episode with Japan, but more broadly the relationship between religion and nationality, and how New Age spiritual groups that would be met with extreme skepticism in other countries, especially in Asia, are a regular occurrence in Korea. So let's go back to the founding of Korean identity. Much as some politically motivated historians press the line that Korea has always been a tributary of China basically forever, history in Korea goes back way past the Bronze Age, as it does with a lot of places. Independent kingdoms in Korea jostled for control of the peninsula for thousands of years, with a kind of culmination in the Joseon dynasty of the 14th and 15th century. This dynasty lasted until the 1900s and saw the creation of Hangul, the language of Korea, as a distinct written entity. Korea was invaded by Japan under Toyotomi Hideyoshi before Tokugawa closed the country off, and they nearly succeeded, save for the efforts of Yi Sun-shin, the greatest admiral you've never heard of. The problem, however, was twofold. Firstly, repelling these invasions took everything that the country had, and it was left pretty well spent by the end. And secondly, 
Japan wouldn't forget the humiliation felt during the failure to conquer Korea, and they would be back later. For now though, now being the beginning of the 19th century, jumping ahead a bit, Korea has enjoyed relative independence, but is in the sights of Europe. You see, trade with Asia has become not only possible to do quickly with the advent of things like clipper ships and steamboats, but there's also extremely profitable. Now, Korea doesn't have tea like China does, but it does get roped into what are referred to as the unequal treaties, wherein Western powers forced the Joseon dynasty to make a large number of concessions as to what they could and couldn't do. In the late 1800s, a period of civil unrest and successive revolutions led to a short-lived Korean empire, which was then annexed by the Japanese empire in 1910. Now, in all of this time, religious development has been happening. Whilst Korea was at one point in time a center of Buddhism, the Joseon dynasty introduced an incredibly strict form of Confucianism. You can remember that from last episode, we'll go over it again in a bit more detail. Confucianism are the teachings of Confucius, the semi-historical character, a bit like Socrates, the sense that everything he said was actually just written down by other people later on, so we don't really know what Confucius said. The general gist of it, though, is that society works best when all of the relationships within society work harmoniously. There are five key relationships, each with a distinct and divinely ordained power dynamic that must be adhered to. The ruler governs the ruled, the father governs the son, the husband governs the wife, older brother governs the younger brother, and between friends, the relationship is relatively equal, excepting social status. Relationships aren't just dominance, though they're reciprocal. The senior governs the junior, but is expected to perform a kind of paternalistic education of the subordinate. The ruler is supposed to be magnanimous and kind to the ruled and govern them well, for instance. In Confucianism, the secular is the spiritual. By practicing good morals and good virtues, one performs spirituality in one's day-to-day -day life. There are elements of the religion that deal with the metaphysical, but they're less concerned with specifically which gods you pray to, and more that you show the proper reverence when you pray to them. Tian, for instance, the Chinese for heaven, is a kind of a god, but not a personal one like in Abrahamic religions, rather a broad force, a bit like the Tao or the Tao in Taoism. It is the way of things, and acting in accordance with the way of things is vital for a good life in a strong society. Now, that's a majorly stripped-down explanation of Confucianism. I'm sure I've missed a big whack of what goes into it. Uh, Abigail Thorne of PhilosophyTube has a great video on Confucius if you want to learn more about it specifically, but what you need to know for our story is that for several hundred years, Confucianism was baked into Korean society. You know that symbol on the flag of South Korea? The taeguk, the red and blue circle, represents a harmony of the positive and the negative, while the black bars of varying shapes, called trigrams, represent the idea of harmony of four. Four classical elements, four seasons, four directions, four members of the family. All must be in perfect balance for society to function properly. Those symbols date back to the Joseon era, and the impact of that period of about 500 years had a lasting impact on South Korean society. Neo-Confucianism was, in effect, the state religion and moral philosophy until the late 19th century. You see, Korea was in the same boat that China had found itself in, and Japan was quickly trying to extricate itself from. Several hundred years of relative peace had meant that Korea had retreated from the world, becoming something of a hermit kingdom. Their wake-up call wasn't quite as dramatic as Japan's with American gunboats in the harbour, but when the Koreans looked over in China and saw what was happening, the intelligentsia of the country decided that rapid modernization would be needed if Korea was going to survive. The old ways just wouldn't cut it anymore. And that was a major cultural divide in a number of Asian countries throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, even to this day. What do we take with us, and what do we leave behind? In Japan, there was a kind of synthesis, a unique blending of Japanese cultural ideals and Western technology turned up to 11. What the West did with things like chivalry in the Victorian era, the Japanese did with Bushido, pumped it full of nationalism and conservative ideals and just ran with it. In China, a perceived failure to adapt led to the fall of the Qing dynasty and a slew of revolutionaries with different ideas of what the country should become, and in the meantime, Western profiteers were leeching wealth from the opium trade and any other means they could get their mitts on. So, what was Korea to do? Confucianism had been such an integral part of the order of society, but the revolutionary fervor sweeping the country in the wake of the unequal treaty with Japan, one of Japan's first imperial outings in 1876, was looking like something bold and brash would be needed. Enter... Christianity. The bane of China and Japan each were in the former a man by the name of Hong Xiuquan had a mental breakdown, believed he was Jesus' brother, and started a war that killed conservatively 20 million people. In the latter, Christianity had been actively repressed as a matter of state policy for several hundred years, mostly for political reasons. For instance, should a wayward daimyo get his hands on European weapons through the Christians, it would mean the shogun would be toast. The royal family of Korea, however, saw Christianity as a meal ticket. If you couldn't beat them, why not join them? From the 1880s, Christian missionaries were welcomed into Korea to build hospitals, schools, and other vital infrastructure that would be needed to help modernize Korea. 
Things escalated when Japan annexed Korea into the Japanese Empire in 1910. You see, Japan had doubled down and made Shintoism their state religion, as discussed last week, and they tried to fob a Korean form of Shintoism, which did already exist, onto the now colony as a form of cultural control. The fact that Korean Christians refused to give up their faith strengthened Christianity as synonymous with Korean nationalism and the fight against the Japanese. And what oppression it was. If you want to ruin your day, go look up what happened in Korea under the Japanese occupation. And then when you're done, go look up Belgium and the Congo or any of the other atrocities. Really, the late 1800s and early 1900s was a terrible time to be anybody that wasn't actively building an empire. Christianity wasn't the only winner from the Japanese occupation, though. Korean revival movements that based themselves in traditional pantheistic beliefs, such as Chiodonism, which has around 65,000 adherents in South Korea, but nearly 3 million in North Korea, take that as you will, managed to also get themselves a big boost in that time. The next big change happens in 1945. You see, the war ends. In China, it's still going on as the civil war resumes, but in Korea, there's an occupation by the United States in the wake of the liberation from Japan. The Korean peninsula is divided into north and south, the communists in the north, everyone else in the south. The Christians in Korea had previously been situated in the north, but now with the anti-religious sentiment rising, they all flee south, and soon there's a huge concentration of Christians in South Korea. All for the better for the US. As I mentioned last episode, Christianity was seen by American political leaders as the opposite of communism, so a big Christian population in Korea could only be good. And apparently the reason that the Cheondists are also so popular in the north is they never left. They weren't concerned with the religious repression, so all of the Cheondists are up in the north and the Christians are down in the south. President Park Chung-hee comes to power in 1961, and he's a Buddhist. His predecessor, Syngman Rhee, had been a Christian, but Park ramps up efforts to stamp out traditional religion in Korea. Why? Well, this one actually goes back to the arrival of the Christians. In the 1890s, when the Protestants set up shop in Korea, they began demonizing the traditional shamanic religions of Korea, those outside of Confucianism and Buddhism, as demon worship. The Mi Sintapa Undong, or movement to overthrow the worship of superstition, became pretty widespread as Christian missionaries worked tirelessly to expunge the legacy of ancestor worship and traditional shrines. This was then morphed by President Park into what he called the Xiaomol Undong, the New Community Movement. Principally, the New Community Movement was an economic reform designed to industrialize rural areas of Korea. However, part of this reform was aimed at superstitions, and as a result, something like that has been described as not unlike the Cultural Revolution of post-Civil War China occurred wherein huge amounts of ancient shrines and sacred trees were cut or torn down. Strange, then, that Park became so enamoured with Choi Tae-min. We'll explain that. Wait for it. Whilst both have declined since 2015, both Buddhism and Christianity are major players in Korea. Christianity commands over 32% of the total population, 20% Protestant, 12% Catholic, roughly. Buddhism at 16%, and both are dwarfed only by the 50% who self-describe as either atheists or non-religious. Tuk Ji-il, a professor of theology at Busan Presbyterian University, argued that Korean history is the main factor in the rise of cults in Korea. His father, by the way, was killed by a cult member in 1994, which cult I couldn't find. First, we had the rise of Christianity and Korean nationalism during the Japanese occupation. Religions that simultaneously gave hope to people and spited the Japanese became very popular. This continued into the Korean War when religion became juxtaposed with communism. Then we get to the military dictatorships and Park Chung-hee's presidency. Whilst mainstream Protestant and Catholic groups condemned the dictatorship, numbers of smaller fringe sects that were popping up at the time tacitly support the dictatorship. There's the chestnut. That's why the anti-superstition President Park was so buddy-buddy with esoteric pseudo-Christian Buddhist Choi Tae-min. Choi had nothing bad to say about President Park at a time when loads of other religious leaders criticized him, so he got a free pass. Then, when Park and his wife die in 1979 and 74 respectively, by being assassinated, a particularly traumatic cause of death to be sure, their grieving daughter Park Yun-hye is approached by this mystic who tells her that everything's going to be okay. You can see where this is headed. We've also got a number of societal elements at play to determine the rise of cults in Korea. The first is the lack of ambiguity of cults. Shincheon-ji believes, for instance, unambiguously that its leader, Lee Man-hee, is the new messiah, he will save your soul when the world's end, which is soon. It's another doomsday cult. In a world where the mainstream opposition of Protestant and Catholic gives you the expedient but unsatisfying answer of, well, what do you think that Bible verse means? They offer a definitive solution to all of life's problems, which is comforting. Another factor is the resurgence of those Confucian values that were baked into Korea over 500 years. Respect to one's elders. A lot of cult leaders, charismatic leaders especially, are older and members vulnerable new recruits are younger, 
so they get put in front of the older charismatic leader and they listen to what they have to say. And I should clarify, this isn't some Orientalist nonsense about weak-willed Koreans, as one might find in a schlocky take about why cults are popular in Korea. Researchers like the aforementioned Tark and Pete Daly, an Australian researcher on Korean cults and university lecturer, consider is that it's essentially just a societally-based peer pressure. Every culture in the world has some people who are held in a higher esteem or regard. No one is totally equal, no matter how much all people may be born so, in theory. In the United States, it's the wealthy. If the rich man tells you to do something, you do it because, well, he knows what he's doing, he's rich. In the UK, we're currently undergoing struggles regarding the aristocracy, the monarchy, and the ideas about the standards to which we should be holding them. In Korea, according to Tarkin Daly, it's one's elders. That Confucian value never really went away. Playing on that idea is the theory put forward that many familial aspects of cults and their exclusionary tendencies make them ideal for people who are into Confucian values. A heavy emphasis on following the proper protocols regarding your relationships with others for the benefit of everybody else. It's cult basics. Daly himself, by the way, is interesting as an aside. I looked him up to check that his take wasn't just some Orientalist nonsense. He nearly went to jail over exposing a cult and its leader. You see, defamation in South Korea is a criminal charge, and after publishing some public domain images of worshippers of Jong Byun Suk of the Jesus Morning Star cult, a man who was currently in prison for raping his female followers, performing rites naked, he was taken to court and cleared on all charges. The journalist, not the cult leader. Yet another element is Korean exceptionalism. All of the new cults in Korea have Korean messiahs, many of whom promise that the Korean people are an elect group in some way who are destined for divinely ordained salvation much like how a lot of New Age religions in America claim that Americans are such. Then there's the economic perspective. Korea underwent its own economic miracle, the so-called Miracle on the Han River. This massive urbanization and burst of capitalist growth, some have argued, led to a spiritual dearth into which charismatic cult leaders insert themselves. Basically the Om Shinrikyu story. What the Bhagwan said about his theory of relationships between wealth and spirituality, you need to have a little bit of both, and so when one surmounts the other, you end up with a gap in the market, basically. So that's why, various reasons, more or less, cults are such a big thing in Korea. They're a thing everywhere, mind, but in the span of six years we have three major scandals involving cult influence on the Korean government and it never seems to go away. The first story we didn't mention in the intro. In 2014, the MV Sewol, a passenger ferry running a route between Incheon and Jeju Island, capsized and sank. Of the 476 passengers and crew, 304 died in the sinking. Of those, 250 were school students. Of those who were rescued, the majority were picked up by fishing boats and commercial vessels responding to the distress signal. The Korean Coast Guard showed up a fashionable 40 minutes late. Now, much of the blame was placed on the captain and the crew, as well as lax regulations for the liner company. Perhaps a topic for a certain engineering disaster podcast that I've gotten into recently, which is itself a disaster. But what I'm looking at here is criticisms of the government. The first of the criticism was aimed at the Korean Coast Guard's perceived ineptitude, but beyond that, criticism went towards Park Kyun-hye and her special friend and advisor, Choi Soon-sil. You see, in the wake of the sinking, the President and Choi had a seven-hour private meeting, during which it was allegedly discussed that President Park should attempt to obfuscate journalists and dodge blame for the incident. It would be a bad look to take blame, said Choi. When this was reported by Japanese journalist Tatsuya Kato on Choi's ordering, she was hit with a defamation suit which, remember, is a criminal offence in Korea. It can carry jail time. People have been suspicious of the relationship between Park and Choi as much as they'd been suspicious of the relationship between both of their fathers, that had, amongst other reasons, gotten her father assassinated. But this was the first time that the influence of Choi over Park had been seriously questioned, as she attended her first crisis meeting on the sinking eight hours after the first briefing, spending that intervening time with Choi. But for the moment, Choi is just a good friend. Her lack of a formal role in the government isn't that big of an issue. Then we get to the 2016 scandal that saw the president impeached. You see, Choi Tae-min's ascension to friend and confidant of the late President Park has set up several charitable organizations as part of that religious cult and part of that association. These charities were, in reality, slush funds to be used for political bribes. After the assassination of her father in 1979, Park Geun-hye turned to Choi Tae-min for moral guidance and moral support, and he welcomed her with open arms. When he died in 1994, Choi Sun-sil took over the role of spiritual guidance counsellor to Park. And with this, Choi Sun-sil played Madame President like a fiddle. The scandal proper broke when allegations arose that money was being funnelled through the non-profits to pay for horse riding lessons for Choi's daughter. Her daughter was good. She won a gold medal for dressage at the Asian Games. 
but things get bad when she was allowed to bring that gold medal into an interview for a prestigious university in 2014-15, in violation of their admissions policy. She got a place, naturally, which had nothing at all to do with the connection to the president. The corruption continued. The young daughter never attended classes or sat exams, but was given flying colours for all and marked in attendance. Her teachers were straight up doing her homework for her, all at the behest of Choi. Students started to protest. How could it be fair that this trust fund kid whose mum was some religious nut got to pass every class summer cum laude when they had to work for their grades? The attention turned then to Choi's relationship with the president. It had surfaced before during the MV Sewol scandal, but it was now clear that the relationship was a little more transactional than it had first appeared. It was one thing to have a seven-hour consultation with your spiritual advisor about a national tragedy, but the potential for exchanging political donations for preferential treatment was straight-up bribery. Then we get to the JTBC scoop of the century. On the 27th of October 2016, they find Choi's Samsung tablet in an office in Germany, and on it was... Park's presidential speeches with edits marked, briefs for cabinet meetings, appointment information and chats with presidential aides, the president's vacation schedule, and I shit thee nay, a selfie of Choi on the image roll, just to really seal the deal. And all of this is without any kind of government position, mind you. Dominic Cummings, odious as his presence was, was the chief of staff of the cabinet and special advisor to the prime minister, technically an actual position in the government. Choi was just some person. But not just some person, though, a religious leader who had been spiritually guiding the president since she'd graduated university, and who had an unparalleled access to classified documents, government files, and the ear of the president. The following day, Park's approval rating drops to 4%. By mid-November, over a million people were protesting in the streets calling for proverbial heads to roll. President Park offered to resign, but this was soundly rejected by her opposition. They wanted an impeachment, and nothing less was going to satisfy them. So cuts start to get made, the Prime Minister got dismissed, allegedly via text message. After the impeachment, which was a unanimous vote in Korea's constitutional court of 8-0, to zero, Park was arrested, given a fine of 180 million Korean won, and sentenced to 25 years in prison. Further charges brought in 2018 increased this. I can't work out the grand total, it must be at least 30 years worth of sentencing. The fine, by the way, is about 158,000 US dollars. Choice and Sill got it even worse in the neck, if you can believe it, a shorter prison sentence of only 20 years, but a fine of 18 billion Korean won. That's 16 million US dollars. That's the end of our main meal, but now we turn to our side dish, the coronavirus tackling scandal, and that shone a light on the fact that, even after the upturning of an entire government and political dynasty, cults still have power in Korea. In February of 2020, the Shincheonji Church of Jesus, oft labelled as a cult who refute that title, led by faith healer Lee Man-hee, attempted to go around the COVID track and trace system in place in Korea. Being in the midst of China and Japan, two immensely densely populated countries, China's eastern seaboard and Japan's megacities that is, with a long history of viral outbreaks, Korea's pandemic plan was thought to be fairly robust. The problem was that their government's tracking program was accused of massive privacy breaches, the alerts you'd get telling you someone you'd come in contact with tested positive also included everywhere they'd been. So some people were accused of having extramarital affairs or soliciting prostitutes when their gaps in their whereabouts were logged. Most were innocuous, such as just talking to a friend on the sidewalk or something like that. But as of the 2nd of March, when the one article I was using for the source for this from the BBC was published, of the 3,730 cases in the Republic of Korea, more than half came from the Shincheonji Church of Jesus. Not a good look. Whilst the major Buddhist, Catholic, and Protestant groups had cancelled their meetings and events, the Shincheonji Church actively continued holding close-quarters congregations and advising members to continue to do so. The US publication Foreign Policy had this to say, with citations of Korean sources on the group. Quote, Shincheonji teaches that illness is a sin, encouraging its followers to suffer through disease to attend services in which they sit closely together, breathing in spittle as they repeatedly are men in unison. If they were off on their own, that might be one thing. But according to Shin Chun-uk, a pastor who formerly belonged to the cult, Shin Chun-ji believes in, quote, deceptive proselytizing, approaching potential converts without disclosing their denomination. Shin Chun-ji convinces its member to cover their tracks, providing a prearranged set of answers to give when anybody asks if they belong to the cult. Often, even family members are in the dark about whether somebody is a Shin Chun-ji follower. The net effect is that Shin Chun-ji followers infect each other easily and then easily go on to infect the community at large. End quote. The group was caught with their hand in the cookie jar, attempting to cover up that its members had gotten sick and encouraging them to resist attempts to prevent them from gathering. 
To make matters even worse, another pastor led the counter-protests. Reverend Jun Kuang Hun, a Presbyterian minister running his own sect called the Sarang Jail Church, claimed that COVID can't get you if you meet outdoors and praise God while you're doing it. A divine wind will blow it away. He also argued that all Buddhists should be expelled from Korea and incarcerated on an island somewhere, and that the Justice Minister of Korea is a communist spy. What you've got to understand about Shincheonji, though, is they've been controversial in Korea for a while. They were founded back in 1984, and Lee Man-hee claims many things. He claims he is Jesus' personal spokesperson, the only avenue for getting into paradise. He claims he will never die. The apocalypse will come, and he will save the elect. He claims he can heal you of sickness through faith. Interviews with former members are telling. You spend almost all your time doing stuff with other members of the cult, and when recruiting new members, you do it secretly. Shincheonji was labelled a cult almost immediately, once the reports of people not being able to leave the group started spreading around. So unlike, say, the Mormons who loudly announced with a knock at the door their affiliation with the Church of the Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints would you like a free book, Shincheonji starts slow, attempting to distance potential recruits from their friend and family first before letting the true motive be known. One former member told the BBC how she was taught that her parents were tantamount to devils in disguise. When they found out about her membership and tried to lock her in the flat to keep her away from the church, she jumped out of a fifth-floor window to escape. This was one of the big things criticised by mainstream religious groups. The insistence on secrecy by members meant that people were refusing to admit they'd been to these super-spreader events right up until it was already too late. And the events themselves didn't help. Shincheonji gatherings don't use chairs, you kneel on the floor in rows and you loudly shout Amen many times through the three-hour worship sessions, basically a how-to guide of getting people to be infected with a highly contagious virus. That same BBC investigation proposed that after this, things are only going to get worse, more strained between Shincheonji and the wider Korean public. There was already an animosity, and after proposals to charge the upper echelons of the group with murder for their flaunting of COVID lockdown rules, the idea being that by knowingly spreading the virus they're responsible for those who will die because of it, things will only get more difficult. It'll drive Shincheonji further underground. After the police raided their HQ to get the info on the leaders who wouldn't hand over potentially infected members, they're just going to change addresses and names and obfuscate further and become even more insular and separate from Korean society. Not quite the intended effect of those procedures. What have we learned here? Well, several things, I should hope. This wasn't one story, as it was with the others, and cults themselves didn't really feature in such a central way, but that's sort of the thesis statement of the episode. It isn't always neat and tidy. With Charles Manson, it was a family. They lived on a commune, they murdered people, we have the evidence, we have the suspects, we have all the gory details. Kind of similar with Jonestown. Things got a bit fuzzier with the Rajneeshis and Aum Shinrikyu, but we still had basic outlines of the groups, their ideals, their goals, and why they came crashing down to earth in the aftermath. But in this case, it wasn't any one cult, really. Sure, the Church of Eternal Life's leader, Choi Soon Seo, was drumming the beat for the president of Korea, and the Shincheonji Church were the ones that exacerbated the COVID outbreaks, but there isn't a denouement here. Park Yun-hye and Choi Soon Seo are in prison, and Shincheonji are under more scrutiny than ever before. But I don't know how many more cults are out there in Korea. Unlike Japan, where the registration of a group as official is a big deal and goes on record, things are a little more nebulous over in Korea. Who knows what the next group to pop up will be, or what they're going to do. So this week, we're not so much looking at whether or not the religious leaders believe in what they're selling. Let's assume, for the sake of the argument, that they did, or do. What matters really is what they do with that power and influence. Choi and Sil used her leverage over President Park much as her father had done with Park's father to bribe, cheat, and cajole her way into a position of special prominence, all while getting sweet, sweet dispensations from the government. Shincheonji used their connections to try and scrub their members from government COVID lists, ostensibly for their own protection, but given how secretive they are with their activities, we don't know the extent of what it was they got up to during their time off the radar. Both cases couldn't be more different, though, on paper. In one, the cult was in bed with the government at the highest possible level. In the other, the cult has been fighting with the government at every turn since their inception. But in both cases, we see a trend of what one might term pervasive influence, whether direct or indirect, being used to exert control in undue manners. Whilst Chinjunchi might have had a case of being persecuted by wider Korean society, like the Rajneeshis arguably did when they first went to Oregon, all other major religious groups cancelled their meetings. Almost all Protestant, Catholic, and Buddhist groups in Korea closed up shop. But Chinjunchi didn't, and that's where the cult label comes in. They're special. It's only at the special meetings that the esoteric knowledge can be passed on or the proper rites performed. 
the Catholic priest might just say, mm, say three Hail Marys and come back next week, now go isolate. But the Xinjiang Chi members insisted in gathering in large numbers when nobody else did. As we discussed earlier, that might be part of the appeal. The Catholic may, in times of stress, find their faith a little flat. Perhaps less so for the Protestants, who by and large think of faith as a personal relationship with the big guy upstairs, but the Xinjiang church is very personal and communal at once. When times are hard, you lean on your community, even if it gets people killed in entirely preventable ways. All attempts to stop that, no matter how well-intentioned for the people who don't believe in your branch of religion, are a personal attack on yourself. That's what really drove a spike through my sympathy for Xinjiang in this case, not only because in terms of their claims, I've heard it all before, but because they didn't give any kind of shit about the externalities of their actions. That's why there was a suggestion, which I don't believe stuck in the end, of murder charges for Lee Man-hee and his inner circle. People undoubtedly died because they couldn't miss their Sunday service, people who had nothing to do with them and didn't follow their faith. In a roundabout way, it's a tantamount to killing someone for your faith and writing that life off as a heathen unworthy of salvation. It's a total disregard for the value of another person's life if they aren't part of your special little gang. The biggest takeaway from this episode is that cults aren't necessarily what you think. We've covered this idea a bit in the Rajneeshi episode, one of the major things cults do is stuff like tax evasion, or fraud, or money laundering, or just general corruption. Whilst Aum Shinrikyu's murder of potentially hundreds of people is undeniably more evil and individual than this, these day-to-day -day crimes are no less prevalent. We also retrace steps from our Manson episode insofar as the culture can make the cult, this but on a broader scale. The history and culture of Korea primed it for this kind of new religious revival and saturation, from state-mandated Confucianism with the Joseon dynasty, to the combination of religion with nationalism under the Japanese yoke, to the fears of the irreligious in the Cold War. The preponderance of Christianity in all of these cults we've covered this season isn't an accident, nor is it intentional. Christianity just has a very easy copy-paste message that works great for cult leaders. As part of why it's so widespread across the world in general, adaptability. The basic element of Jesus being God's son and God at the same time and dying for your sins on the cross is only really neat, along with that apocalyptic framework that someday, soon, he, or someone like him, potentially your cult leader, will return to this world and purge it of sin in a massive doomsday event. In a wider scope, this is why so many branches of Christianity exist. While some groups, like the Catholic Church, do claim a monopoly on what is and is not scripture, after loads of wars and reformations and travelling, it's generally, and I use that term very lightly, accepted that so long as you accept the basic principles, you can be a Christian. Everything else is just kind of window dressing. But because of these ideas that there's a monopoly on truth, you have all of those formalised branches. After all, the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 has to make sure that it's totally distinct from the Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. Big difference. It takes a lot of major boxes for potential cult members. Easy to follow? Check. Messianic figure whose actual qualities vary depending on your interpretation? Check. No verifiable way to really be certain that the end of the world is coming and thus a reliance on faith on the charismatic leader of your cult who embodies Jesus? Check. Not all our cults were that way. The Rajneeshi stand out as not at all being influenced by Christianity in the ways that the others were, at least. The Bhagwan had his own stuff going on. But a broader quality that we need to assess of cults is the general idea of syncretism. Syncretism is when one religion sort of absorbs another and you end up with a new faith that's a hybrid of both. It happens a lot in cult stories like Om Shinrikyu being a syncretization of Christianity, Shinto, Buddhism, Hinduism, and some other stuff as well. Whenever it happens, it leads to interesting results. The most famous example I covered in our episode on zombies way back in the day, what one might term voodoo, between Haiti and Louisiana and the rest of the Caribbean, essentially traditional West African religions merging with Catholicism to create something that's a little of column A and a little of column B. Christianity gets syncretized a lot because historically that was the big way it spread. For Ireland, in instance, it's syncretized with the local Celtic paganism to form insular Christianity. In Scandinavia, it's syncretized with Norse paganism, the gods become heroes, the myths are sort of preserved, but with some Christian messages thrown in. Case in point, Beowulf. Grendel, in the story of Beowulf, is a descendant of Cain from the Bible. That would almost certainly not have been in the original oral tradition, but it got thrown in by monks to make the recording of the story more palatable. So Christianity in particular has the tendency of syncretization. There's also the apocalyptic elements. The apocalypse in Christianity is good and bad. For believers, it's good. They'll be taken up to heaven or live in heaven on earth for all eternity. For the heretics and the sinners, it's bad. They will be vanquished and burn in hellfire. This creates two things that are useful for cults. Number one is a deadline. 
Everybody loves a deadline, puts pressure on the believer to act now or lose your once-in-a-lifetime chance. The second is it immediately creates an in-group and an out-group, the elect and the sinners. Some Christian sects such as Calvinism believe that the elect is already chosen, that you are either born elect or you are born damned, and there's nothing you can do to change that. But for other groups, especially the prospective cult, this means that you can tell your members that anything their friends and family say is a lie, sent by Satan to poison their minds, even if it's, I don't think that new group of yours is healthy. This isn't at all to say, by the way, that Christianity has a tendency towards developing into cults, merely to explain perhaps why it seems to come up again and again. The features just kind of lend itself to that sort of thing, and whilst historically that works well to spread its influence, it can also backfire. Cough, cough, Jonestown, cough, cough. And now we come to our final verdict on what defines a cult. Well, I'll start by saying what I said at the beginning, there is no one definitive answer, because as soon as a group gets labelled a cult, a cycle begins to happen. We saw it at Jonestown, we saw it with the Rajneeshis. Becoming a cult makes people afraid of you, which creates tension, which creates exclusion, which exacerbates cult-like tendencies. The leader gets paranoid and cuts off contact with the outside world, and the whole thing goes tits up. We didn't cover Waco in the main series, although a prospective bonus episode may be on the way for that. Waco is a good example of that cycle where the prophecy becomes self-fulfilling. Whether or not the Branch Davidians were a cult to begin with, they certainly were at the very end, and that wasn't helped by media coverage. In general, we can see three trends that define cults. The first, the charismatic leader. As we've seen over and over again, that leader isn't necessarily one person behind the scenes, but in front of the cameras there's always the one who sets the tone, who steers the ship, who is the focal point. Some cults no longer have that leader but still operate. Osho International, whilst it isn't anywhere like the Rajneeshis were in the 80s, is still around, but the question is, are they a cult? Scientology lost L. Ron Hubbard in the 80s, but the main question today tends to revolve around whether or not they're a pyramid scheme more so than a cult. Ongoing legal battles in a number of countries raise questions, legally speaking, in the UK, Scientology is a religion. Just a religion that happens to make money off recruiting new members and has been accused of running a private prison, but apparently a religion nonetheless. The second trait that defines a cult is the process of indoctrination and brainwashing. This is a bit harder to get around to properly defining. Back when I was an edgelord atheist in my teenage years, I cringe to recall, I'd say that any religious education of any kind is indoctrination, and to some extent I would say that any education that insists on a monopoly of the truth is some form of indoctrination. The question is a bit more vague, and I'll admit it's something of a moot point. You can go in circles arguing whether or not teaching creationism or evolution is indoctrination. Obviously you'd say that the science isn't, it's backed by a consensus which belongs to no one particular group and is not a dogmatic viewpoint insofar as the view shifts with new research. From my perspective, what indoctrination revolves around is the fulcrum of the monopoly on truth. When you teach a kid that something like evolutionary theory, there's always a caveat in there. We don't have all the answers. Before Darwin we didn't know at all, and in the wake of scientists after him our views have changed on exactly how it happens, but we're pretty sure. Sorry Mendelssohn. Indoctrination is telling somebody that not only do you know the truth, you're the only person who does. If they listen to anyone else, they'll be corrupted with lies. Only by listening to the one true source of knowledge can they gain true understanding. Indoctrination can be political. Only my politically affiliated news source is true. Everyone else is a shill funded by subversive interests to corrupt my precious, precious grey matter. The final step in indoctrination is always the same, though. When the charismatic leader or one of his underlings gets you to do something that is in no way in your own interest for their cause. Perhaps, as one old man did to Christian doomsayer Harold Camping, you give him all your money. Maybe you turn on your friends and family, like the stories of Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia. Or maybe, like Om Shinrikyu, you undergo mind-bending physical torture at the behest of your superior, all for the greater good. Once that step is taken, you're hooked because of that twist of psychology we discussed before, the sunk cost, the association of doing unpleasant things with a righteous cause. You've suffered, so now you're one of them. The final step is the exploitation of members of the group by the leader of the inner circle. This is a key one, I think, because it's what separates religion from cult. Because all religions to some extent claim a monopoly on truth and some have charismatic leaders. But when you're actively being exploited, that's when you're in a cult. Like I said before with the Church of England, Tithes are very simple as an example. They're optional. You get past the donation basket and it's expected that you put money in, and sure, there's peer pressure, but you don't actually have to. You can choose not to. And if you do, people might judge you, but there'll be no negative repercussion. It's your choice. 
When the charismatic leader tells you you must pay us all of your income and you're going to be happy about it, that's exploitation. And it's not always financial. In the Manson family, Charles Manson had his female followers give their bodies to George Spahn in exchange for use of the ranch. A list I got from The Guardian, citing cult researcher and psychologist Robert J. Lifton, has an additional 10 red flags to look for if you think that somebody you know has gotten involved with the cult. This may come in handy. Number one is total authoritarian leadership with no accountability. Many have criticized the slowness and milquetoast nature of the responses, but there was a formal investigation into the worldwide Catholic child abuse cases, both the sexual abuse and the ones who died in the care of Catholic institutions. Not all of those involved has faced justice, but some have. In a cult, you don't even get the hearing. There is no failure, no wrongdoing whatsoever. On the back of that, number two. No critical inquiry, no questions. You either accept the facts as presented or you leave. In a way, it's kind of like the Nigerian prince scam. Sort of intentional. The Nigerian prince scams are written with all those spelling mistakes in because they weed out people who would see through the lie. The only people left to be picked up are the ones who might actually believe it without question. Number three, no meaningful financial disclosure. A bit specific, but if a friend of yours, group, or say a politician they really like, refuses to release their tax information, how much money they really make, or what they do with it, that might be a bad sign. No accountability, not even to accountants. Number four is an unreasonable fear of the outside world. This could be a doomsday prophecy, this could be unfounded worries of persecution, or anything along those lines. Unfortunately, with some we've covered, we've seen how that can very quickly spiral out of control. The fifth is there's no legitimate way of leaving the group. Apostasy is a crime in some countries and in some faiths, and it's as bad in every context. That, that is, perceived as a crime. Apostasy itself is not bad. Freedom of religion means freedom from religion, and if you don't want to continue practicing your current faith and you want to explore a new one, you should be allowed to. I went to a private school as high school and had a chaplain, as they sometimes do. He was not only Church of England, but he was also a monk in another Christian denomination, as well as an ardent scholar of Zen Buddhism. If that's not exercising your freedom of religion, I don't know what is. A cult wouldn't even let you consider it. All of those who've left are as good as dead, and in some cases they are killed for the crime of leaving, lest they spill the secrets to outsiders or report abuses from within. Sixth. The former members will relate the same or similar stories of patterns of abuse. If one person says it, it may just be a jealous splinter getting burnt. When Shoko Asahara left his first sect, he was keen to position himself as being better than they. But when everybody starts saying there's a problem, something's wrong. Like the Catholic child abuse scandals, the ignoring of repeated accusations was what led to things being as bad as they were. People tried to get the word out, but repeated repression and cover-ups by the Catholic Church ended up causing the problem to get even worse and even more protracted. 7 follows 6. Document records and abuses by the leader of the group. This isn't always the case, as with Jim Jones, he had a sterling record, sort of, before losing his goddamn mind. But Charles Manson and Shoko Asahara were both known to be highly manipulative individuals with violent tendencies and absolutely no empathy with criminal records and personal histories that confirmed those stories. Number eight, followers are never good enough. That's the issue with those religions wherein you need to continually level up, as it were. A free religion might tell you that everyone's a sinner, but so long as you're trying, it's all going to be okay. A cult says trying isn't good enough. You need to be perfect to perfection is unattainable. Unless, of course, you offer another donation to the group to prove your dedication, of course. Number nine is that the leader is beyond reproach. Hate to bring him up again, but the Catholic Church gets another tick against them for this one because of papal infallibility. The doctrine that was created in 1870 and reinforced in 1950 that literally means the Pope cannot be wrong, like in a general sense. If what he says contradicts something established, the new thing applies because Pope equals correct always. But that dogma isn't really used in the modern day. People realise that it was dumb, basically, that any one person can claim to literally never be wrong. In the cult, however, the leader is never wrong. They can never fail. They won't fail, because they can't. The cult I've been slotting into every episode, QAnon, still maintain that even though all their predictions have not come to pass, they're still right. Those on the verge of self-awareness questioned, in the wake of Joe Biden's inauguration, that if they were wrong about that, then presumably everything else was wrong too. They were told the world was going to end. Trump would swoop in and arrest Biden, the military would overthrow the government, the seas would turn to lemonade, yada 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 yada. Some left because of that not happening. 
Others stayed and dug their heels in. Time will tell how America, and I guess the rest of the world, handles it. Number 10 is what I talked about earlier. Monopoly of the truth. Only your leader, who can never be wrong, knows the intimate truths of the world. There is no other way to access knowledge beyond mortal ken, save through the teachings of the cult. To mention the widespread appeal of Christianity, the most liberal of Protestants would say that all you need to find your own truth is a Bible. Everything else is just window dressing. That's the opposite of your cult, who states you must adhere to the specific teachings of only their congregation to the exclusion of everything else, everything your family tells you, everything society tells you, everything science, and every other institution of religion or philosophy or any kind of teaching tells you. You must believe them and only them. Only they can save you. So taking all of this in, what is a cult? At the end of the day, it's up to the individual to discern for themselves. But hopefully when somebody comes to you with promises of a really great deal, if only you'd sell your life to them, think twice. And it's easy to fall into the trap, too. The daughter of Leo Ryan, the congressman who was murdered at Jonestown by the People's Temple, ended up joining the Rajneeshis for a spell, a fact that Ma Anand Sheila loved to trot out as evidence of the Rajneeshis not being a cult. It's not so simple to avoid the overtures. All of what I've said might seem obvious, but in the heat of the moment, when the evangelist is in front of you, you might make the wrong decision for reasons you don't even understand. But that brings us to the end of our deep dive into cults. This is by no means a full, extensive list of every cult that has ever been, is, or will be. Just five stories that I thought merited examination under a microscope. Hopefully I've managed to dispel some of the misconceptions. More than that, brushed away the layers of mythology that surround these strange and sometimes dangerous groups, made it easier to see the cogs and gears beneath the clockwork. Unlike the other series of this podcast, by the way, this one works really good as an album, insofar as the episodes sort of build off each other. With that, though, we close the book, for now at least, on cults. Stay tuned for a special episode coming soon, and we'll see you in the next season. This episode of Demystified was written, recorded, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>